Hello friends, Tom here. I want to welcome you from wherever you are tuning in. Uh, we are now in week five in our series entitled Teach Us to Pray. Uh, we've been going through the Lord's Prayer, primarily in Matthew chapter six, kind of with this desire of like, Jesus, teach us to pray. Show us how to engage with you in the way that you created us to. That's our heart behind this series. If you've missed any of the previous messages, I can't encourage you enough to tune into those. All of these kind of build on each, on, on each other, and, and so it's important. Check those out if you haven't. This morning, I'm really excited because we're going to continue on in this series, and I, I'm convinced uh, that this will be, I hate to use that cliche Christian term relevant, but I, I'm confident this will be relevant for all of us especially in the season that we find ourselves in as a nation, um, and even us here in Southern California, all of the things happening, I think today will be especially relevant. That being said, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab that. Hopefully you have one nearby. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6 again today. So uh, before we jump in, I'm going to pray for us. Will you join me in prayer? Father, um, we recognize your goodness um, in your holiness, and your love, and your kindness. Um, and we recognize that it's because of who you are that we get to be close to you. We get to call ourselves um, beloved children of God. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, my prayer and my request right now is that you would help me and you would help us. We wanna, we wanna learn to pray, teach us to pray. That's our heart. Um, not just for the sake of being able to like acquire the skill of prayer, but it all serves the purpose of being closer to you. So would you help us, Holy Spirit? Would you help me to honor and serve my uh, brothers and sisters, my friends, my family that are tuning into this? I don't want to do anything that gets in the way of what you want to communicate. So please, Lord, have your way in this time. Encourage us. Teach us to pray, please. Love you, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 9. We're actually going to go a couple verses after the, the section of the Lord's Prayer here, and you'll see why in just a bit, but Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 9, all the way through verse 15. Here we go. The words of Jesus. He said this, Therefore, you should pray like this, Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. Okay, if you haven't guessed it yet, we are focusing in primarily on verses 12 and verses 14 and 15 with this idea of forgiveness. Jesus says, pray like this, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, forgiveness, uh, kind of an uh, intimidating topic to tackle in one message, hopefully uh, in about 30 minutes or so right now. But either way, let's ask ourselves the question, what does it mean to forgive? What does it mean to forgive? Now, we know that there are tons of opinions out there of what forgiveness is, what forgiveness isn't. But I think we can all agree that, that God's opinion here is the one that matters. Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament and the Bible, you know that it was originally written in Greek. And the word here for forgive, it's the Greek word aphiami. Aphiami. Okay, and what that Greek word means is it means to pardon, 
to remove guilt resulting from a wrongdoing. One of my favorite uh, Greek to English lexicons says this about this word aphiemi that's translated to forgive. It says this, quote, it is extremely important to note that the focus of the meaning of aphiemi, which is forgive, is built upon the guilt of the wrongdoer and not upon the wrongdoing itself. The event of wrongdoing is not undone, but the guilt, listen to that, the guilt resulting from such an event is pardoned. To forgive, therefore, means essentially to remove the guilt resulting from the wrongdoing. Therefore, to forgive sins is literally to forgive guilt. It is obviously not possible to blot out or to wipe out an event, but it is possible to remove or obliterate the guilt. So, in other words, forgiveness, it's not about denying or even forgetting the wrongdoing. It's about removing the guilt for the wrongdoing. Now, uh, my senior year in high school, my, my school did this kind of program called Every 15 Minutes. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with what it is, but they brought all of us into the, the gym, the gymnasium. And I can still remember uh, the school that I went to was, uh, at the time, it had been years, decades since they did any, any improvements. And the gym was like one of those old kind of kind of musky, like, like, like sweaty gyms, you know, but it had a ton of character. And I remember them bringing us all into the gym and to kind of kick off this program. And there's a man who's an older man who's standing there in the center of the gymnasium. And he has this easel. You can tell it's an easel. You can tell there's like a painting or like something to display on the easel that's covered with a blanket, like with a covering. And he begins to, you know, tell us a little bit about, him, about himself and then he pulls off the sheet, and it's this like painted portrait, it's, it was really well done, of this what seemed like a young man. And <clears throat> he tells the story of this young man who was his son, and talked about how, you know, obviously he loved his son and the things that they would do growing up, and, and then he remarked about how uh, one evening his son got off of work, and he was driving home, and at the same exact time that his son was driving home, another man was also driving home, but not from work. He was driving home from hanging out with some friends. And this other man uh, had too much to drink, thought that he could handle it, thought that he was fine, and he was driving on his way home and ran a red light and hit this man's son, the, 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 the boy who was on the, uh, the painting, hit him, T-boned him through a red light, uh, and killed this young boy. Young man, really. And I remember the dad describing the details of kind of the aftermath of this happening. And he described how, you know, he got a knock on the door late at night, and it was the, it was the police, and they were informing him of what happened and just the trauma that he experienced in that. And he, and he talked about how he had to go down to the coroner's office to identify his son's body. And he, and he, and he gave him like detail, like experiencing the funeral um, and honoring his son's life, but being just totally just destroyed and missing his boy. 
and he talked about the, just the pain of burying his child. And I remember, like, there, I mean, it was one of those things, like, in, in assemblies in high school, usually everyone's kind of joking around. It's hard to get everyone's attention. I remember how quiet it was in that gymnasium as he was telling this story. Because his son was about our age. And so this, this man who's standing in the center of this gymnasium, he continues his story. And he talks about how, this, how he reached out to the man who had killed his son because of his drunk driving. He reached out to him in prison. And he reached out because he wanted to get a meeting with him. And so after several attempts, the guy finally agrees to meet with him in prison, you know, as like a visitation. And he tells the story of how he engages with the very man who took his son's life and how he extends forgiveness to this man. And not only does he extend forgiveness, he starts regularly meeting with this man in prison. And the next thing you know, a friendship was birthed out of forgiving this man. What the father did was he no longer held the offense against the man who killed his son because of his drunk driving. He no longer held the offense. You see, the guilt had been removed, but the wrongdoing remained. The, the, the son was still killed. The guilt was removed. The wrongdoing remained. This, no, nothing was going to uh, bring the, his son back. And that guilt being removed, but the wrongdoing remained, that's forgiveness, friends. That's what forgiveness is. And now listen, many of you, myself included, we've experienced something similar in our life. Maybe not as traumatic or maybe more traumatic, but we've experienced something similar in our lives. We've been deeply hurt. Maybe you've been deeply hurt by someone very close to you. We've experienced significant loss. You've been wronged. And listen, those events cannot be undone. Listen, did you know that the holes in Jesus' hands, you know, from the crucifixion, did you know that the holes in Jesus' hands are still there? Jesus' resurrected body, coming back from the dead, his perfect heavenly body, it still has holes. It still has scars from the events that cannot be undone. Friends, forgiveness is not removing the wrongdoing. It's removing the guilt for the wrongdoing. So when Jesus says, pray this way, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Listen, we cannot talk about this verse without talking about sin. Everyone's favorite subject, sin, right? We cannot talk about this without talking about sin because before we can honestly and authentically and unhypocritically pray this way, the way that Jesus instructs his disciples to pray, we first have to realize that we need to. Uh, the New Testament, it uses five different Greek words for sin, okay? I'm going to run through these really quickly because I think it'll help paint a picture, uh, a holistic picture, a complete picture of what sin is, okay? The first word, the first Greek word that we see, and it's the most common that's used in the scriptures that's translated from Greek into English as sin, is the Greek word hamartia. And what it means is it means to miss the target. Okay, so like to miss the mark, to miss the target. It's this idea of we aren't as good as we could be. 
Now, if you are a parent, you know exactly what this is like, okay? What we, we, we want to be patient with our children, and we desire to treat them with kindness at all times, but there are moments when we miss the target, okay? And we are not as good as we could be. That's harmatia. Now, the second one is, is, is the Greek word parabasis. And what that means is, is stepping across, okay? It's this idea of crossing the line between right and wrong, okay? So if you've ever, if you've ever embellished or you've ever lied, you haven't always stayed on the right side of the line, okay? Parabasis, to sin, stepping across the line from right to wrong, okay? The third one here, paraptoma, paraptoma, that's the third one. And what that means is it's a slipping across, Okay, so where, where that one prior, prior to this parabasis, again, another word for sin, whereas that was a stepping across, paraptoma is a slipping across. It's different from parabasis in that it's not as deliberate. Okay, you're still crossing the line, but it's not as, a, it's not as deliberate. It's this idea of like, like a momentary kind of impulse, right? So it's, it's like when the unkind word just kind of slips out. That's the idea, paraptoma. The fourth of the five Greek words used for sin is the Greek word anomia. And what that literally means is lawlessness. It's knowing what is right and yet doing wrong. Okay? It's knowing the law and breaking it anyway. So for those of you that cruise down the highway and you look and you see that that speed limit says 70 miles an hour and you go, you know what? I know it says 70, but I'm going to go 80. That's anomia, that's lawlessness. Or, another example, you know that person isn't your spouse, and yet you flirt anyway. Or worse, lawlessness, knowing the right thing and doing the wrong. And the final of the five is the Greek word ophilema, ophilema. And this is actually the specific word that's used in the Lord's Prayer that we just read for debts, okay? And that's what it means. It means a debt. It means a failure to pay that which is due. So it's this kind of this idea of like a failure in duty, a debt, ophilema, okay? So just to review, the five kind of Greek words used for sin, one, to miss the target, two, to step across the line, three, to slip across the line, not as deliberate, but still crossing the line, Fourth, lawlessness, knowing the right thing and doing the wrong thing. And the fifth thing, failure to pay that which is due, uh, a debt. Okay, listen, Jesus clearly wants his followers to be aware of sin. He says, pray like this, engage with God like this, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Listen to me, a disciple cannot pray this while denying sin or dismissing it. Friends, sin is incredibly serious. Why? Because first and foremost, sin is an offense against the God of the universe. Almighty, perfectly holy, God Almighty. And the Bible says that sin, it deserves the wrath of God. It's serious. Like, think about that for a second. 
Think about deserving the wrath of God. Sin, first and foremost, is a rejection, a rebellion against him and his ways. He's the king. He sets forth, what's, he sets forth the law. The wrath of God is, is what the sinner deserves. Now, we don't like that idea very much, okay? There might even be people right now who are watching this that are looking for the remote or look, they're, they're going to turn it off. But hear me out, okay? Most people prefer the, the God of love over the God of wrath. Listen, Tim Keller says this regarding this idea. Quote, You may say, I don't like the idea of the wrath of God. I want a God of love. The problem, that, the problem is that if you want a loving God, you have to have an angry God. Please think about it. Loving people can get angry, not in spite of their love, but because of it. In fact, the more closely and deeply you love people in your life, the angrier you can get. Have you noticed that? When you see people who are harmed or abused, you get mad. If you see people abusing themselves, you get mad at them out of love. Your senses of love and justice are activated together, not in opposition to each other. If you see people destroying themselves or destroying other people and you don't get mad, listen to this, it's because you don't care. You're too absorbed in yourself, too cynical, too hard. The more loving you are, the more ferociously angry you will be at whatever harms your beloved. And the greater the harm, the more resolute your opposition will be. So it makes no sense to say, I don't want a wrathful God, I want a loving God. If, if God is loving and good, he must be angry at evil. Angry enough to do something about it. Friends, I don't want to like downplay this. God hates sin. He hates it. Why? Because it separates, it divides, and it destroys. Sin is dangerous. Sin harms his beloved. So listen to me. Please don't find, like if you find yourself minimizing sin, stop. God doesn't. Sin is serious. I want you to imagine for just a second, you go to a restaurant, and it's a restaurant that you love, it's your favorite restaurant maybe, and you sit down and the ambiance is just awesome and you're totally excited for the meal, you can already smell it coming from the kitchen, you place your order, the, 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 you know, the, the waiter comes out, brings your food down, sets it in front of you, you can smell it, you're so excited, you got good friends and family with you at the table, but you become aware of something. You become aware that there is poison in your food. What are you going to do? Like what would happen if you just kind of went on with the meal as normal? Cracking jokes, you know, having fun, seeing your food there, it's great. And what would happen if you took a bite? It wouldn't be good. You see, sin is like poison. If you dismiss it, if you fail to acknowledge it, or you deny it's there, listen to me, you are in danger. Sin is serious, friends. It's not to be disregarded. And don't you see, if you dismiss sin, if you dismiss it, you actually forfeit the opportunity to biblically forgive. Not to deny the wrongdoing, but to remove the guilt. 
Listen to me. Forgiveness is not forgetting. It's not dismissing. It's not denying. It's removing the guilt. It's it's not holding on to the offense. Removing the guilt, not holding on to the offense, that can be costly. And friends, that is what Jesus accomplished with his blood on the cross. He was treated as the guilty one. You know this. He was treated as the guilty one. He was punished for our iniquities, Isaiah says. And as a result, where there once was separation because of sin, division because of sin, now we can have a restored relationship with the very God that we sinned against. D.A. Carson, famous Bible theologian, says this. He puts it this way, quote, Praying, forgive us our debts, means not that we lose our salvation every time we sin, but, listen, that our fellowship with God is hindered when we fail to repent of our misdeeds. Friends, it's all about relationship. It is all about relationship. The blood of Jesus removes all guilt from the Christian. Absolutely removes all the guilt from a Christian. But ongoing sin, it hinders our relationship. Embracing God's forgiveness, it removes the guilt and it restores the closeness. But that requires taking responsibility for sin. It requires acknowledging it and stopping it. That's what repentance is. A daily, ongoing practice of the child of God, of the disciple of Jesus, of the Christian. Now listen, there's another thing about praying this way that we see here in verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. There's another thing about praying this way that Jesus instructs you, you know, engaging with God this way that you have to know, okay, you need to be aware of. And I'll be honest with you, it's a little terrifying, okay? It's a little frightening. I'm gonna read it again, verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. William Barclay, famous Bible commentator, says this. The literal meaning is forgive us our sins in proportion as we forgive those who have sinned against us. In verses 14 and 15, we read those earlier, Jesus says in the plainest possible language that if we forgive others, God will forgive us. But if we refuse to forgive others, God will refuse to forgive us. It is therefore quite clear that if we pray this petition with an unhealed breach, an unsettled quarrel in our lives, listen to this, we are asking God not to forgive us. Are you seeing this? Think about that. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. In proportion to. So Jesus says, God in the flesh says, pray, engage with God in this way. Why? Because it's an ongoing wake-up call to the danger of sin, that it's poison. And specifically that unforgiveness, the opposite of forgiveness, unforgiveness is incredibly dangerous on every level. Okay, most of you watching this probably have access to a car, okay, or you've had access to a car sometime in your life. Now, what do you do with your car? Okay, every so often, you gotta change the oil, okay, you gotta replace the tires, 
Maybe you got to repair or replace, you know, like a light bulb or, or a hose or whatever. You have to do this kind of regular maintenance to your vehicle. Why? So that it runs properly, right? Living with unforgiveness is maintaining separation between two parties. That's what it is. It's upholding the effects of sin. Jesus tells his disciples to pray this way because it infers a a vigilance in removing the guilt of others for the wrongdoings that they do against us just like he did. And listen, in so doing that, we maintain not separation, we maintain unity instead of maintaining separation. Friends, it's all about being united. You and God. You and everybody else. I'll close with this. Engaging, praying, engaging with God as Jesus directs us to in this passage, it requires prayers of confession. And prayers of confession... Listen to me. They disable sin of its power over you. I'm going to say that again. Prayers of confession, they disable sin of its power over you because of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. Okay? His perfect sacrifice in our place, taking on the guilt, our guilt, removing the guilt from us without removing the actual wrongdoings. Okay, listen. Prayers of confession, they destroy shame and they destroy division. Prayers of confession are the opposite of denying or dismissing sin. Because prayers of confession, what do they do? They bring sin into light. Out of the darkness and into the light. And don't you see, friend, when we deny sin or we dismiss sin or, or we reject being conscious of sin, all we're doing is keeping sin in the dark. We're pretending that the poison won't have an effect. You know, I, I don't talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. Like, uh, I, I, don't acknowledge, I don't acknowledge it. I, I don't want to think about it. Listen to me. That's precisely what shame is. And it's a foothold for the enemy in your life. You don't want that. But listen, sin loses its power when it's brought into the light. When it's revealed and acknowledged and the blood of Jesus has the power to transfer the guilt onto him instead of you. There is now, there's therefore now no condemnation, no guilt for those in Christ Jesus. Amazing news. That means I don't have to hide sin. Like, I don't have to be ashamed at all. I've been totally forgiven. The guilt has been removed from me. It was placed onto Jesus. Okay, the debt has been paid by him. It is finished. Sin no longer defines me. I'm not afraid to bring it into the light. I'm not afraid to confess it to God, to others, because I'm not guilty for it anymore. So listen to me, when a person experiences the miraculous, incredible forgiveness of Jesus, not only does it destroy shame, but guess what else it does? 
it empowers them to forgive in the same way that they've been forgiven. And that, my friends, destroys division. I mean, think about the implications. Imagine if you and me, and maybe just our church, imagine if every single one of us forgave all the time. Think of the implications. There would be zero division. None. We would maintain unity. Shame is destroyed. Division is destroyed all through the forgiveness of Jesus. So listen, I want to challenge you this week. I want to challenge you not to dismiss or deny sin, but instead I want, you to, I want to challenge you to offer prayers of confession. Prayers of confession. And enjoy the power of the forgiveness of God in your life. Actually taste it. Friends, that's what Jesus is getting at here here in verse 12. And that's what he's inviting us into. Let me pray for us. Father, won't you help us? Won't you help us be people who take sin seriously and who enjoy your grace deeply? Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for removing the guilt I know that the wrongdoings still remain. I know that the holes are still in your hands, Jesus. But I thank you that you've removed the guilt from me and countless others. And I pray, Father, that anybody who's listening to this that's struggling, that's that's feeling condemned or feeling guilty, I pray by the power of your Spirit that you would remove the guilt from them and help them to embrace and trust in Jesus, his free gift of grace, that he he was condemned in their place. He received the punishment for our guilt. He took it upon himself. He was our substitute. And I pray that that would just bring us so much joy, so much gratitude, and that we would engage with you, our Heavenly Father, who is supreme in that way, from that place of of enjoying a life where we are defeating sin through the power of forgiveness, not just in our own lives, but in the lives of the people around us. Grace, let grace reign in us. Father, I love you. I trust you. Please teach us to pray. Amen. Friends, love you very much. We'll catch you next time.